We read verses 19 to 31 of John chapter 20, and I'm going to be making reference to parts of that in the message, but I want to focus our attention especially on a dialogue that is going on between Jesus and his disciple Thomas. And I want to look at verses 24 to 29 for that particular focus out of which comes the points of the message as well. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I suspect that one of the most widely accepted ideas in our world today is this one, when we hear people saying, seeing is believing. By our human nature, we have a tendency not to believe anything unless we have experienced it with our senses. Now, I'm talking about the five senses that God has given to us, the taste, smell, hearing, uh, feeling, and seeing. And unless we experience anything with any one of those senses, we, by our human nature, have a difficulty believing that what has been said is true. We want proof for anything that we hear. We want to be sure that anything that we are called upon to believe has the evidence and that we can be absolutely sure about that by our seeing or by our hearing or by any one of our senses. Does that sound like you this morning? It certainly sounds like Thomas, doesn't it? But Jesus when he has his conversation with Thomas, teaches Thomas a lesson whereby rather than by our human nature we are caught into a wave of seeing is believing, Jesus says to Thomas and the disciples then and his disciples today, he turns that completely upside down as he often does in his teachings, doesn't he? And he said, no, rather, I want you to understand and to know that believing is seeing. Thus the title of the message as you have it in the outline in your bulletin this morning. 
This message is actually a part of a conference again that I teach on the subject of apologetics. Now, if that goes a little bit over your head, that's okay, because we're going to understand a little bit more about what this, how this comes into play as we go through this message. Apologetics basically means and talks about the defense of the faith. How do we defend the Christian faith and the teachings of the scriptures in our lives? And in the camp of Christian apologists, there are basically two different camps. There are those who follow the evidentialist ideas of presenting the Christian truths, and they would say, and they would bring truths by, by way of proving. We, they would say, well, here's what the Scripture says, and here are things that are happening in our world today to prove that the Scriptures are true. And they do a very good job of that. There are also, in the other camp of apologists, who would say, no, really, in order for us to be able to understand and to know what's going on in our world today, we need to first understand and know and believe that what the Scripture says is true. The Scriptures don't need to be proved in order to believe it. They are the truth because it is God's Word. And from that, then, we can begin to build our understanding of the defense of the faith, knowing, first of all, that what the Scripture says is true. And those in that camp are those who are called presuppositionalists, a long word. As we go through this message this morning, we're going to find and understand and know that Jesus teaches you and me today that we need to accept at face value what the Scripture says, and we will not begin to understand anything that's going on in our world today unless we, first of all, accept at face value by God's supreme authority what he has written in his word. Accept it and believe it and then we will be on the road to understanding what life is all about. But Thomas was not the first or the last to wrestle with this whole concept of, of understanding and knowing and believing. I'm thinking back in the Old Testament to Abraham and Sarah. They being well on in age, Abraham is told by an angel that his wife Sarah, 90 years old, well beyond childbearing years, that she is going to have a child. And Abraham and Sarah have difficulty believing it, and they fall into that same trap as others around them and saying, well, yeah, I have to see that to believe it. Sarah receives her name because she laughed. Her name reflects she who laughs when she heard that news. Similar situation in the New Testament. Zechariah, in the temple service, a priest receives a message from the angel that his wife Elizabeth, who has had no children and also well beyond childbearing years, is going to have a child. He too is disbelieving. And as a result of his disbelief, he is struck mute. He's not able to speak. For the duration of the pregnancy, imagine, for nine months not being able to speak, as a reminder of falling into the trap of seeing is believing. Out of that 
couple comes the birth of a child who we now know as John the Baptist. And now Thomas, in our passage of Scripture, we identify him oftentimes as Doubting Thomas. I wonder if that's a fair caricature of him, as though he were the only disciple that would have doubted. The other disciples, as we read in our story, as the passage reminds us of that, had already had the experience of Jesus in verses 19 to 23, having already appeared to them, and Thomas was not with them that week before. And the disciples are telling Thomas throughout the week that they had seen Jesus, and, and Thomas declares, seeing is believing, I have to see it in order to believe it. I have to feel it in order to know it. What is interesting is that this episode of Jesus' conversation and dialogue with Thomas is found only in the Gospel of John. And it's in the Gospel of John where this comes as a climax to the gospel. In any study you would do on the gospel of John in biblical studies, you would, you would learn that the, that the focus of the gospel of John, the key text, if you will, the purpose of the gospel of John, comes in verse 31, which we also read as part of our passage of Scripture, where John writes, these are written, why? The purpose of his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I have written this gospel, says John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is God. That's why I wrote this. And we will see how this particular incident with Thomas brings us to a completion of a fulfillment of that purpose in the gospel of John as we see this being developed. And as we look at this, I want for us to understand and to see as a theme for this message that God uses periods of doubt in the life of the Christian in order to strengthen our faith in Christ. Related somewhat to the message from last week on Habakkuk, for those of you who were here last week looking at the difficult questions of life and how Habakkuk answered that and how we are called upon to answer that. This trails out from that same theme. As I develop this, as we look at this in this message, I want for us to see a dialogue that's going on between Jesus and Thomas. The dialogue opens with Thomas's statement of doubt. In verse 24, we have the fact that Thomas uh, has not been hearing uh, much of what was going on, just identifying Thomas, called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus was with the disciples. And then in verse 25, we have the first part of that dialogue where Thomas declares his statement of doubt. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus responds to Thomas's statement of doubt. In verse 28, Thomas Re reacts and responds to Jesus' response to him. And then verse 29, Jesus, as he always does, has the last word, and it's a word of teaching, of application, not only for Thomas, but for the disciples, and not only for the disciples then, but for God's disciples today. Let's look at these harsh parts of the dialogue as we have that before us. 
But if we are going to be focusing on the person of Thomas, we want to understand a little bit about Thomas. Each of the disciples have unique characteristics. As we read through the Gospels, we'll see different kinds of characteristics that come out on the part of the disciples. I'm not going to go through all 12 of those. But Thomas especially now, since he's the focus here, we meet him twice earlier on in the Gospel of John. And we see something about who he is. And something about who he is is reflected in the dialogue that we have here between Jesus and Thomas and provides for us an opportunity to learn something. As we see John, Thomas being presented in the Gospel of John, the first time we are uh, introduced to, to Thomas is in John chapter 11, verse 16. And that comes just before Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus hears the news that his good friend, a brother in the Lord, a disciple of his too, has died. And Jesus simply in John chapter 11 says, I will go and be and visit with Lazarus. Thomas, thinking what normally perhaps the other disciples were also thinking is the only way he's going to see Thomas if he's dead is that he will die so that he can join him in glory. So Thomas is able to reflect on that and it reflects a little bit on his loyalty because Thomas then says, let us then also go where you are going. He wants to be loyal. So one thing we know about Thomas is that he's a very loyal to his master, to Jesus Christ. He is a loyal disciple. But we also see in this his pessimism. He always has a tendency to be able to see the darker side of things. That cup of water that is half full while he sees the top empty half. He doesn't focus too much on the bottom part of that glass that is full of, of half a cup of water. Later when we meet with Thomas, we meet him in John chapter 14. When Jesus is teaching about the mansions that he is preparing for us in glory, and Thomas, when Jesus is teaching that, asks a question or makes a comment that really expresses what was on the mind of the other disciples, but they didn't have the courage to express what was on their mind. Thomas, one of the characteristics about him, we find is that he has the courage, he just simply says what's on his mind, and he's very honest with those who are around him. When Thomas says something, we don't need to guess what did he mean by what he said. He just simply explains and says what's on his mind. And at this particular instance, when, when Jesus talks about the mansions that he has prepared in glory and his open honesty and his character, he says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? No doubt that was in the mind of the other disciples. But Thomas, in his honesty and his courage, just simply expresses what's on his mind. Well, now here we come to John chapter 20, the concluding portion of the Gospel of John. It follows the time, the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just a week earlier, Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead on that first day of the week, eight days earlier. During the week, 
is when we get the first part of Thomas's portion of this dialogue and his response when the disciples say to him, Thomas, guess what? We have seen the Lord. Thomas, in verse 25, expresses his profound statement of doubt when he says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It doesn't get any more emphatic in terms of an expression of doubt than that. Seeing is believing, says Thomas. I won't believe it unless or until except that I put my finger into the holes of his hands, put my hand into his side, etc. Thomas expresses that to his disciples. Doubt. Do we know and experience this doubt in our lives? Where does doubt come from? In order to get a grasp on Thomas's profound statement of doubt and to understand if we are honest with ourselves our own questions of doubt that we may have, I won't go into details on that because we looked at that last week in the study of the prophecy of Habakkuk. But one of the things we need to understand is that doubt is the very tool that Satan uses in order to distract followers of Christ from their goal in life to be faithful to their master, Christ. Thomas experienced that. The disciples there experienced that. You and I experienced that today. In the Garden of Eden, Satan tempts Adam and Eve and plants the seed of doubt. Did God really say? Are you sure you understood what he meant when he said, you shall not partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat thereof, you will die. Did God really mean that when he said that? What? And so he plants a seed of doubt, and that seed of doubt is the seed of that first sin that came into the world as Eve first, and then Adam quickly afterwards fell into that trap of that seed of doubt, and it flourished, and it has had an impact on all of humanity from that time forward because Adam represented the human race at that time. And so we know that doubt, even as we experience it today, is rooted in what happened in the Garden of Eden. And it has everything to do with the sin that is a part of our lives. We sin because we doubt whether what the Bible says is really true or whether we can really count on God. We'd rather depend on ourselves to resolve any issues that we are living with 
rather than depend on something that is hard to put our finger on or to listen to or to, to say something about or to smell or to feel. Seeing is believing was planted by Satan to distract the world from the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that message which says, no, 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 believing is seeing. Well, that was Thomas's statement of doubt, and how does Jesus answer that? In verses 26 and 27, now Jesus comes into their midst, and you would think that Jesus would be very angry, very upset, you might expect, and perhaps the disciples might have expected that as well, that Jesus would say to Thomas, Thomas, what is your problem? Thomas, get your act together. Thomas, I'm disappointed in you. But when Jesus comes into the room, what is the first words, what are the first words that he utters? We look at that in verse 26. Peace to you. The first thing that Jesus declares when he's in the presence of his disciples, in the presence of this very sensitive moment, no doubt there is a situation where, as we often say, there's an elephant in the room. We know something's going on, but nobody wants to talk about it. Thomas has just declared utter doubt, and here now is Jesus, a great big elephant in the room, isn't it? And the first message that Jesus has for his disciples is this, peace to you. That is the message of Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the gospel message that we read about in the scriptures, in the gospels, and from the words of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he does is declare his mission, his message, the reason why he was sent to earth to declare peace. Oh, this is not the first time even in the passage that we read that he declares that, is it? When he is with his disciples in verse 19, what does he say in, to his disciples when he first comes into that room, coming through those closed doors and shut windows for fear of the Jews? First message, peace be with you. In verse 21, Jesus again repeats it to them, peace to you. And now here in verse 27, as Jesus is gathered together with his disciples, he again repeats what the reason is for his mission on earth. I have come to bring peace. And then he turns to Thomas. And I can almost imagine the disciples taking sort of a step back and saying, okay, here it comes. How does, Thomas, how does Jesus address Thomas's statement of doubt? He addresses it in verse 27, by answering every one of Thomas's questions of doubt. Thomas's question of doubt is in verse 25. Let's compare that to verse 27. Thomas, in verse 25, says, unless I see in his hands the print of his nails, in verse 27, Jesus says, Thomas, look at my hands. In verse 25, Thomas says, Unless I put my finger into the print of the nails, Thomas says, or Jesus says, Thomas, come here, come forward. 
put your finger into the hole that was created by that nail print. In verse 25, Thomas's declaration of doubt, he says, unless I put my hand into his side, and Jesus says in verse 27, Thomas, reach out your hand, put it into my side. You will recall that his side was pressed, on, pressed upon by a sword to, to determine whether or not he was actually dead, and it was determined while he was, lying the, while he was on the cross that he was dead as a result of that, and so he had a, an injury in his side. He was stabbed by a sword, and Thomas then puts his hand into that side and sees that it is indeed his master. Jesus patiently setting aside all of Thomas's doubts. Jesus understands the pressures of Satan on his people because he himself experienced that same pressure. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus goes into the wilderness before he starts his public ministry, Satan comes to Jesus and tempts Jesus three different times using passages of Scripture. Satan knows the Scriptures probably better than you and I. But Jesus is the Scriptures. Jesus is the living word. And he was able to put Satan in his place. He did not fall into the trap that Satan had set for him on three different occasions then. And he answers Satan with scriptures that he himself is the living embodiment of and sets Satan in his place, as it were. When we look at this, Thomas then says in his verse 25 ultimate declaration of the statement of doubt I will I'm looking at the last three words four words of verse 25 unless all of these conditions are met I will not believe Jesus last words of verse 27 says do not be unbelieving but believing Thomas uses the verb believe. Jesus uses the same verb that Thomas expressed his doubt on in the original, in the negative and in the positive. Stop your unbelieving and be believing. That's a pretty strong way for Jesus to respond to Thomas's question and statement of doubt. Jesus basically says to Thomas, Thomas, do you not see what Satan is doing to you? Stop unbelieving and start believing, says Jesus to Thomas. Now it's Thomas's turn to respond. And his response in verse 28 provides for us the most profound, indeed, certainly the most concise profession of faith. We have various statements of faith, which we use as a summary of the teachings of the scriptures in the three forms of unity, the Canons of Dort, the Belgian Confession, 
the Heidelberg Catechism. There are the different creeds that we use as a base for our own doctrinal understanding of what the scriptures are all about, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, Nicene Creed. But this statement of Thomas is perhaps the one that's the most concise that could ever be expressed. Jesus, you are my Lord and my God, says Thomas. I want you to see that in this profession of Thomas, John, the gospel writer, comes to the pinnacle, the peak, the climax of his gospel. What is the purpose of the writing of the gospel of John? I mentioned that earlier on in the introduction. Verse 31. These things are written, why? So that you may believe that Christ, Jesus, I'm sorry, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why he wrote the gospel. And now, Thomas declares as the climax of the entire gospel that he writes, Thomas declares, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. The climax of the gospel of John in these concise words. No more profound, concise profession of faith can be uttered by anyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ than this one to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God. Jesus is Lord. Throughout much of our messages that we hear in the evangelical messages today, we hear about Jesus being our Savior, and He is, in the sense that He saves us from our sin. He went to the cross to take the punishment of our sin. The wrath of God was on Him so that we would be exonerated from that wrath of God. He saves us from our sins, but he not only is our Savior, what is missing in much of the gospel message today around our world is to teach that reality that not only did Jesus save us from our sin, but because he saved us from our sin, we are now responsible to declare him as the Lord of our lives, and we are to follow him day by day by day and day after day to look to see what God wants for us through his son, Jesus Christ. He, as it were, says to us, as you want to take the image of driving the car, get away from the steering wheel, sit in the passenger seat, I'm taking over. I am the Lord, you will obey me now because of what I have done for you. Your response is to follow me. What was it that he declared for his disciples to do when he called them in the early chapters, in the early part of his ministry? Follow me. Come follow me. Peter, John, James, those who were his disciples, follow me. That's what it means to acknowledge Jesus not only as the Savior of our lives, but as the Lord, as we say to him, now I give up my own desires, my own plans, and I submit them to you. We'll talk about that this afternoon, that will be done. 
But not only is Jesus declaring himself, Thomas declaring Jesus as being his Lord, he also declares Jesus as being God. I can't tell you how important that message is for our world today that challenges the fact that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. Many will say, well, Jesus in history, if he lived, if it was true, he certainly was a good teacher. He was that. He's a good man. He was that. He's a great example to follow. He was that. But that's nothing in comparison to the reason why is that because he is God. Few today in comparison amongst the billions in our world today will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God. That's a part of the reason why John writes his gospel too, by the way. In addition to be a being a lesson on apologetics, it's also a lesson in the Gospel of John. Because in John chapter 1, verse 1, John sets out right from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. And in case you're not sure what this Word is a reference to, or rather, who this word is a reference to in verse 14 of that same first chapter, John the Gospel writer writes and quotes Jesus, and he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or lived among us, or better translated, tabernacled, spent every day among us. That word became flesh was Jesus Christ. That's the Christmas message of the gospel of John, if you will. The word became flesh. Jesus is God. The word was God, verse 1. The word became flesh. That was Jesus Christ. And until we come to acknowledgement of that in our lives, we will continue to have the doubts that we experience in our lives. Then it is now Jesus' turn in the dialogue to respond and to reflect on the confession of Thomas. And in verse 29, we read what Jesus says, Now Thomas, and if we want to be honest with ourselves, we could put our own name in the place of Thomas there. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Thomas and all disciples, you have been caught up in this whole idea that seeing is believing. That's what Jesus said. But, blessed, and here's that message that Jesus comes to Thomas and the disciples and the disciples since then. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. A clear teaching could not exist about a reminder of the fact of Jesus teaching his disciples the fact that we do not need to prove the scriptures in order to guarantee that they are true. We don't need evidence. If we depended on evidence for everything that were in scriptures, 
and we were to find some things in scriptures that we simply were not able to find in the laws of science or in the experience of nature to prove, would that not shake your faith to discover there might be some things that might not be able to be proved in the scriptures and therefore I'm not sure if I can believe the scriptures so I'll accept those parts of the scriptures that they can prove things and I won't accept those parts of the scriptures that they can't believe things as though we were sitting in front of a buffet and accepting what we wanted and what we could prove and what we couldn't prove. No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus says to us, the only way that you are going to understand what's going on in life is if you take at face value the word that God has given to us and say, this is the truth, I know it's the truth, and accepting that in faith, now I will begin to ask questions about what's going on in our world, and maybe some of those questions won't be answered, but I, don't, I know that I don't have to start by proving that everything in the scriptures is true. I know that they're true. 100% every word of it from beginning to end, the scriptures are true, and I believe them. And with that as a foundation, now I'll begin to start to unravel and ask our questions. It's okay to ask these questions, but knowing that our answers are founded in the fact that the scriptures are true. Never being shaken in our faith about that. That's what faith is all about. You see, what happens here in this incident with Thomas is a progression from a profound statement of doubt of Thomas unless all these conditions are met, I will not believe, verse 25, to a very profound and concise statement of faith, the opposite of doubt. When Thomas says, Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my God. And that faith is what God is calling you and me to think through and to, and to appropriate for ourselves in our, whole, in our own lives. That's exactly why we set out here to understand and know that Thomas understood and experienced the fact that he was brought from doubt to faith. God uses periods of doubt in the life of the Christian to bring them to a complete response of faith in him. Our faith is strengthened when we experience in that in our own lives and Thomas experiences that for himself as well. When we think this through, I can't help but understand how this could be a part of my life, this doubt to faith. Perhaps an illustration of karate might help us to understand that in the sport of karate. Now, I don't practice karate. My physique will show that to you. But I understand what karate is about in that the opponent uses an offensive move to throw a punch, let's say, at his opponent. And the one who's defending is grabbing that punch and using the momentum of that offensive move takes the one who is throwing that punch and uses the momentum of that and flips him over on his back. Theoretically, that's how it works. Satan using doubt as an offensive tool, and God 
allowing us to use that offensive tool through His Holy Spirit, through the power of His Holy Spirit, taking that offensive tool and turning it completely on its head and flipping it around and using it to build our faith in Him. God does that. Using periods of doubt as experiences for us to be able to grow in our faith life before Him. If you are going through a period of doubt in your life, for whatever reason that may be, read through the story of Thomas. And if it doesn't sink in the first time, read it again. And if it doesn't sink in the second time, read it again. It will sink in to see that God is the one who knows and understands the doubts that we go through and is able to use that in order to build our faith life before him so that we too will come to that profound profession of faith that Thomas declares when we acknowledge in our own lives by God's Holy Spirit and by the grace that he provides to us, we will be able to acknowledge of Jesus Christ and he is indeed our Lord and our God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we have an opportunity to reflect on the reality of the experiences that we go through in life that Satan tempts us around every corner. But we are thankful, Father, that we can express with John as he writes in his letters later on, greater is he who is in us, Jesus Christ, than he who is in the world, Satan. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be able to acknowledge that and to come to an understanding of that and to grow in our own faith life. We pray, Father, that you would help us to minister to those who may be going through a period of doubt, spiritual struggles in their lives, or help us as we go through that in our own lives, and to be able to use that as a tool to be able to, to equip ourselves to know and to understand that you are the one who provides all these things for us, and to help us to move along in our own faith commitment as you give that as a gift to us. In Jesus' name we pray.